Uh, we're going to be finishing the last uh, few verses of John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25 this morning. And the, the title of this sermon is Superficial Spirituality. So let's read these three verses, ask for God's help to understand it, and get into it. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you, Lord, even for kind of sobering verses like the ones we just read. Lord, uh, this morning, we do come to you as sheep, and we need food for our soul. We need refreshment and nourishment from the, the one who is the youngest in the faith to the oldest saint in here, those who have been walking with you for even just days and those who've been walking with you for for decades, Lord, together we need your living word. And it is alive and it's active. And so Holy Spirit, make your word fresh. And would you apply it like a sword to our soul? Lord, I even ask this morning that um, I know that we come with many needs and with um, many requests and things going on in our life. But I ask that right now we would, we would meet with you on your terms that we would handle and, and sit under your word, that we would hear what you have to say our real need is and uh, what our heart is and what you are like. So Lord, just realign even now um, our, our questions, our priorities, rearrange our hearts, Lord. To, God, I just think of that verse where it says, this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. And so Lord, I ask this morning, that we, this first service, Reality Carpinteria, would be a people who is humble and contrite and that we would tremble at your word and what you have to say, that we would listen to you and accept what you have to say to us, God. We would trust it is good, it is right, that you would lead us, that you would be our shepherd. We love you, Lord. This in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's, it's good to be back in John. Uh, this, these few verses at the end of chapter two are actually like a midpoint of, of a, like a three-chapter th- uh, theme John is, is building into his books. Chapters two, three, and four essentially have one theme. There's one theme, John is, he's bookending it. He's making the point over and over and over again, and he sums it up in these verses. And the, the, the theme of chapters two, three, and four is this. It's, it's superficial worship. John is confronting superficial worship. And so, so he's giving us these stories like Jesus cleansing the temple. The people were all about, yeah, worship, and the praise of God was on their lips, but their hearts were far from him. 
And then next we're going to read of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, who was a re- religious leader. And he, he knew a lot of the right stuff and he was doing the right things, but his heart wasn't alive to God. He wasn't yet born again. And then in chapter four, we're going to see Jesus interacting with the woman at the well in Samaria. And she's going to ask these kind of superficial questions. Well, are we supposed to worship in Samaria? Are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, you don't even know what true worship is. True worship is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of these external, where should I go to this mountain or that mountain? And so Jesus is confronting superficial worship in chapters two, three, and four. And these verses essentially sum it all up. It sums up what just happened in the cleansing of the temple, and it's setting us up to be ready for Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus about you need to be born again, with his conversation with the woman at the well. And what's incredible for us to recognize here is there's even a type of belief in Jesus, even a worship of Jesus that's superficial, worship, superficial worship is not just, yeah, I worship another God or I do this. You know, I know Christians do that. I do this. What we are being confronted with here is there are people who even say they believe in Jesus, in the name of Jesus, and their worship is actually superficial. Now, now these words should serve, John wrote them to have this unsettling effect on us. If you remember, what is the the whole theme, the whole purpose behind the gospel of John? If you remember when we started the book, uh, we had you write this verse down in your little John journals, uh, and it was John chapter 20, verse 31. Why did John write this book? It's this. He said, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. He's reminding us, he's saying, the whole point of this book is that you would believe in Jesus and have life. And then he starts his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 12. He, he says the same thing. Look what he says in John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He bookends his gospel. This is the point that you would believe in his name and become a child of God. And so that's the theme. And as Jesus calls his first disciples, things look to be on track. Look again with me at John chapter two, verse 11. Look what it says. I think we have it here. This, the first of his signs, that's when he turned water into wine. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we see, okay, this is the point of the gospel. Why does Jesus do signs? He does it to manifest his glory so that people would believe in him. We're, we're on track. Okay, that's right. That's what, that's what the goal is, that people would believe in Jesus. And then we get to our text. And look, just read with me again the words of this text. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So pause. That's great. That's the goal. That's exactly what we're looking for. That's why the gospel was written. That's why Jesus is doing his signs. He's in Jerusalem doing signs and people believe in him. But now this word comes, but Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people 
and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We should be a bit like unsettled at this point. Because it's like, wait, the whole point is to believe in Jesus. The whole point of the signs is so that we would believe in his name. Here are the signs. They believe in his name, but something's wrong. What's going on here? Many believed, many people believed in him, and yet Jesus does not accept that faith. Now, this is the first of many times in the Gospel of John where Faith in Jesus proves to be superficial, where we learn that not all belief in Jesus is equal. There is saving faith and there is unsaving faith. There is belief that leads to life and there is belief that does not lead to life. And John uses these words intentionally. He's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing. He uses the same words in the same chapter of the true disciples who really believed in Jesus and the false disciples who Jesus did not accept their faith. Now, we're going to learn throughout the book of John many reasons for this superficial faith. We're going to see many different case studies and scenarios where people had faith and then, they did, and then they lost their faith or they believed in Jesus and then they walked away from Jesus or they were disciples of Jesus and then Jesus said some hard things and then they stopped following Jesus where the crowd, the very crowd who was praising Jesus turns and says, crucify him. We're going to see that theme throughout the gospel of John. And this is the first time we see it. There, there is faith that is superficial. It doesn't go all the way down. And in in these verses, we get three reasons, three descriptions of superficial faith. And the first one is this. Superficial spirituality relies on signs over substance. Superficial spirituality relies on signs over substance. Look again at verse 23. It says this, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when what? They saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, now there is, John is clear. Jesus uh, performed many signs. We, we get a detailed account of a few, but he, he's clear. Jesus performed many signs. And, and John is also clear. The New Testament is also clear that, that signs are good. They're not bad. A miracle is a good thing. It is from God and it is what God has given. It's, it's a way God is validating the identity and ministry of Jesus. So signs are a good thing. There's nothing wrong with signs. But it's important to note, or actually I want, I want us to see real quick, signs are good. Look at John chapter 10, verse 37, 38. This is, a, this is where we see, why do we have signs? Is it bad to believe in signs? Are they wrong to believe in signs? This is what it says in John chapter 10, verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe in me. But if I do them, the works of my Father, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So there is a purpose to these works. They validate the fact that Jesus is sent from the Father. They have an important place, but signs themselves are never meant to be the end object of our faith. 
The word sign is significant. They are to point us to something deeper than the sign. A sign points us to a deeper, truer reality. If you were on a drive and you were going to a national park and you saw the sign saying, National Park, five miles. And it was a beautiful sign. It had a nice picture there of the National Park. And you got out of the car and you just stopped and marveled at the sign. Said, I love this National Park. Look at this. This is amazing. And you got in your car and turned around and went home. You would have missed the whole point of the sign. The sign wasn't bad. The sign had a valid uh, purpose. But you would be selling yourself infinitely short of actually going to the national park and seeing what the sign was supposed to point you to. Uh, another helpful metaphor for the miracles of Jesus is they're like a, have you ever, I've never seen this. I've read about this. I've seen it in movies, a waxed seal on a document. You've seen that, you know, so someone writes a letter, which is a thing I, I guess people used to do, and then you'd fold it up. Or let's say it was a king and he had a, a formal edict and he had this formal thing. This is a new law in the kingdom. And they fold it up and they put some hot wax on top of the fold. And then the king would have like a ring with his seal on it. And he would stamp it and it would be certified from the king. This is a genuine document from the king. It's not counterfeited. We all recognize that seal is validating that document. Now, let's say you were to receive that document. The seal is important. It serves its place. If the seal isn't there, it's, it's hard to know. Is this genuine? Is this counterfeit? How can I know? The seal is important. But how ridiculous would it be to never open the seal and read the letter? To be like, look, the seal, there it is. I see the seal. That's, that's real. And then never read the letter. That's, it's, you're missing the point of the seal. You're missing the point of that validation. Now, Jesus is God's letter, we know this, sent from God to humanity. And Jesus' ability to perform miracles and signs and wonders, it was validating his identity as the true son of God. No one ever did this kind of stuff. Maybe some prophets at certain moments could do kind of a few things, but Jesus at will, whenever he wanted, performed incredible signs and they were a seal on his identity. They were validating who he was as the son of God. So his miracles were important. They had a valid place. But as we read the gospel of John, as you read the gospels, you will see a tragic thing happens people begin to obsess over the signs and neglect the substance they're pointing to. People begin to obsess over the signs and wonders, over this, new, this bread from heaven that they just ate, and they just want more bread. They don't actually want to get to know the one performing these signs. Human hearts are so prone to long for something miraculous and supernatural that, that we'll get stuck there and forget to look behind them. Like, what's going on here? Why is this happening? We see time and time again, the crowd just wants Jesus for his signs. They don't actually want Jesus. And that is a mark of superficial faith. That is a mark of a faith that doesn't go all the way down that just stays on the surface, that is only fed by more signs and more signs and more signs. And when the signs stop, the faith stops because the faith was only in the signs. Now, again, 
signs are good. They're from God. Look again at chapter two, verse 11. Right after Jesus did the first of his signs and manifested his glory, his disciples believed in him. Signs are often given to confirm and strengthen and bolster faith that's already there in Jesus. But if you just put your faith in a sign and not in Jesus, your faith will only be superficial. In fact, look what Jesus goes on to say two chapters later in John 4, verse 48. We have it up here. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Indicating that people were saying, I'm not even going to believe in you, Jesus. I'm not going to believe or accept your words or anything you do. You got to prove yourself to me. He's saying that's the wrong posture towards signs and wonders. Time and time again, Jesus actually condemns a generation seeking a sign. What a generation should be seeking is Jesus. Signs may or may not come. We are to seek Jesus. But when we are obsessed with signs, our faith is superficial. And a sad truth in our text is that it says many. Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover week. There's so many people there. And it says many believed in him, but Jesus doesn't entrust himself to a single one. There was not a true new believer added that week. They saw signs. They saw Jesus. They all put this superficial belief in him, but not one did Jesus entrust himself to them. Now, I want to say this. This is obvious, but I want to say it. This is not just a first century phenomenon. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, many will say to him, the day that he comes and we all stand before him, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, only to hear him say back, I never knew you. He says, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter that gate are many. And he says, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. That means that there are many people today who claim belief in Jesus and yet are really only interested in what they can get from him in his signs, and they're, they're not truly on the narrow road to life. That's an unsettling fact, and it should unsettle us. When the road becomes difficult, when it involves suffering, when the signs don't come, many opt out, go find an easier way. And we've all seen it. Have we not all seen it with our own relationships? People who are walking with Jesus and then faced some kind of disappointment and walked away. Haven't we all seen it? Church, it's likely there are many sitting here right now who have this kind of superficial faith in Jesus. And if that's you, I want you to hear this. There is hope for you. Because these verses were put directly before John chapter three and this conversation with a man with superficial faith who recognized Jesus is from God and there's something significant to him, but this man was not yet born again. These verses should unsettle us, but they should also lead us to hope and to Jesus himself, not to signs, but to Jesus himself, the substance behind the signs and say, Jesus, how can I enter the kingdom of God? 
And so there is hope for you if you have this kind of faith. There's one more, there's even one more hope that's hidden in grammar that I just want to point out to you. This is, this is a fun thing that happens when you read books about verses that you normally wouldn't read. Uh, in verse 24, it says, in the, when, it, when it says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself, that verb, let me get this right, is in the imperfect active indicative Nobody knows what that means, but here's what it, that, here's, to translate that, that's, this is what it means. It means, it, it's as if the verse is saying, Jesus was not entrusting himself. He was not entrusting himself, meaning the jury is still out. That verb is not a closed case, done deal. You got superficial faith, I'm done with you. What that verb is saying is at the moment with your superficial faith, you're not getting like the full Jesus. You're not getting true, deep communion with Jesus. Jesus, is not, Jesus doesn't give himself to this kind of faith, but he's not at the moment. But if you like Nicodemus come and pursue him and try and say, Jesus, how can I get into your kingdom? How can I be born again? He will entrust himself to you we see that there is still hope even for those who have superficial faith. No matter where you've been and your history and your doubts, there is hope for you to truly come to have saving faith in Jesus, for your faith to go deeper than the superficial surface, for it to be genuine, for it to be lasting. Even in the lack of signs and wonders, even in the seasons of suffering, there is hope that you will have true true faith in Jesus. Now, if you have questions about that, if this verse unsettles you, that means it's doing its job. That means the Holy Spirit's at work in you. Come find a pastor or someone you trust. Come get prayer. We would love to pray with you and talk to you about that. That is exactly why these verses are here, that don't be afraid to have that conversation. That is why the Holy Spirit gave us these verses. So that's the first thing about superficial faith. It relies on the signs over the substance. The second thing we see about superficial faith in this text is this. Superficial spirituality lacks life-giving intimacy with Jesus. It lacks this life-giving just nourishment by the person of Jesus. We see that in verse 24 when it says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. He did not entrust himself to them. There was not this communion, this intimacy, this love, this genuine deep trust in Jesus, and then Jesus entrusting himself back to that person. I want you to see in in just, just two pictures where John describes this intimacy with Jesus in his gospel. Look at John chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. This is a chapter where Jesus is referring to himself as the good shepherd. Look at the intimacy available here with Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. This entire chapter is this this picture, this description of sheep who know the voice of their shepherd and the shepherd who knows his sheep and he cares for them and he provides for them and he even lays down his life for them. That describes genuine faith in Jesus. And then look with me in John chapter 15. This is that famous chapter where Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And he says, abide in me. And then in in, in verse nine, he says, as the father has loved me, 
So I have loved you. Abide in my love. When we have genuine faith in Jesus, we get to abide in the same love that the Father has for Jesus. It's just this crazy, deep intimacy with God. That describes true faith, genuine faith. As Jesus entrusts himself fully to those who entrust themselves to him. This wonderful communion. And yet what's happening here in John chapter 2 is these superficial believers, they are not experiencing that kind of intimacy with Jesus. These, are, are, these believers are like the soil Jesus describes that receives the word of God initially with joy and it springs up. But when trial and heat comes, it, there's no roots that go down deep. There's no depth there. And so it withers away. It doesn't last. That's that rocky soil. They receive Jesus with joy. They, they Listen, and, and we've maybe seen this in the church. We, we've seen people have this extreme like emotional experience with God or, or maybe they, they have this like intellectual like, do you know what? I think Christianity makes more sense than anything else. And so they have this season and they spring up quickly and they may be singing on the carpets louder than everyone. They may be serving at church. They may be joining a Bible study. But then for some reason, at some point, that fire kind of dies away and they, they, they slowly maybe stop serving and they maybe stop enjoying the word of God and they stop communing with God and they maybe go find another joy or another love. This is faith that doesn't go down deep, that isn't daily being nourished and nurtured through intimacy with Jesus. It goes, true faith goes deep deeper than our emotions. It stays when our emotions go. And did you know that true faith is actually deeper than even our intellect? In in the book of James, James describes belief that the demons have. Listen, demons have really good doctrine. They have their systematic theology down. They know the Bible more than all of us. They believe the right stuff. But that type of belief, that type of knowledge is not saving. It's not this loving intimacy, this depth of love for Jesus. You see, true faith is not superficial. It doesn't stay just at the level of our mind or just at the level of our emotions. It's deeper than that. And it it abides day after day. In fact, it grows. In fact, those roots go down deeper than what a storm or a trial can, can get to. As we see these pictures in the Psalms, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who's just daily feeding on the word of God. It's like this tree by a river. And it says in storm or wind or whatever may come, he doesn't wither because the roots go down deep. They're deeply abiding in Jesus. And, and when, when the wind comes, it says the wicked are like chaff. It blows away. But those who who deeply commune with Jesus, they abide, they stay. I want to read just one more psalm, this picture that the psalmist has, this description of his love for the Lord. This describes true intimacy with God. Psalm 73, verse 25 to 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. True spirituality says, I desire God more than anything else on earth. There aren't these rocks getting in the way that we won't remove saying, no, Lord, you can't have this. It says, Lord, there is nothing I desire besides you. My desire for you so surpasses everything else. That is true saving faith. And again, I just want to say, if that doesn't describe your faith, it's probably not abiding faith. And what you should do is what Nicodemus does, say, Lord, how can I have that kind of faith? Lord, I need a new heart. I need salvation. I need to be born again, not just the superficial, I do the right stuff and I think the right things and I go through the motions. I need that kind of faith, this new heart to be filled with the spirit of God that says yes and amen to verses like that. God, give me that kind of heart. There is hope for you to have true, genuine, saving faith. Now, the third uh, mark of superficial spirituality in our text is a superficial spirituality minimizes our true spiritual condition. Superficial spirituality minimizes our true spiritual condition. At this moment in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus' popularity is on the rise. It's just going to continue to grow and grow and grow. There's momentum. There are crowds exceeding, you know, over 20,000 people accumulating to hear Jesus, to see the miracles of Jesus. Like, Jesus' popularity is on the rise. Yet, Jesus saw right through their hearts. He saw through the heart of these great crowds. And as verse 25 says, and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus could look into any individual and see their heart and see their faith and see what they're gonna be doing tomorrow and the next 10 years and the last day of their life. He could see all the way down to their heart. And when he looked at this crowd, he didn't see saving faith. Now, I want to ask you this question. Is your view of humanity the same as Jesus' view of humanity? Is your view of humanity the same as Jesus' view of humanity? You know, uh, self-awareness is a rare thing. Uh, And especially self-awareness at the level of what's going on in your own heart is nearly impossible who can even know their own heart? But, but look at this verse in, in, well, let me say this first. Jesus is God and he alone can see into our hearts. And he alone can see what's really going on there. And so to truly understand ourselves, let me suggest that we, we, we are not our own soul doctor, that we should not look inward and be like, oh, listen, I know my heart. Let me tell you about it. What we should do is turn to the one who can see our heart and does know our heart. 
listen, we're like the age of the Google doctor, right? Like, I don't need a doctor. I got Google. That's me all the time. Oh, yeah, I know my symptoms. Okay, this is what's going on. I don't need medicine. This is, that's my personality. Like, I'm my, own, I'm my own doctor. We do the same thing with our souls. Listen, I know what's going on. I know my soul. I know my heart. I could tell you, yeah, yeah, I'm struggling here. I'm struggling there. But I, I see what's going on here. I'll be my own soul doctor. Let me suggest that only Jesus can see clearly down to the bottom of our heart and spiritual condition. And only Jesus can provide the right diagnosis and the right solution to the sickness that is in our heart. So I, I want us together to turn to, and I can hear the groans already, but we're going to do it. Uh, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. This is a verse that, uh, a passage that God has given us to see clearly our own hearts, to see the right picture of what's really going on. When Jesus looks into the hearts of humanity, what does he see? <clears throat> I, I shouldn't need to say this, but I will. Though this is the Old Testament, Jesus believed in the Old Testament. Jesus believed like, yeah, this is the Bible. This is the word of God. And so if you, if you ever have a trouble reading, is this really for me? Jesus viewed even the Old Testament as God's word to you. So let's read together Jeremiah 17 verses nine and 10. What is really going on in our hearts? The hearts of humanity. Jeremiah 17 verse nine and 10 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Right here, God says, you know what? The heart is sick. And it's deceitful. It lies to itself about itself. Above all things, it's desperately sick. It's not just like has a cold. It's desperately sick. And who can understand it? What philosopher, what great author, what great scholar can understand the heart? But in verse 10, he says, I, the Lord, can search the heart. I can see what's going on. I test the heart and the mind. Now, uh, here are the objections that I can feel. I felt it even preparing this. Listen, people are beat up enough They don't need to come to church to get beat up even more. You don't need to tell them that. And then here's the second objection. Uh, Yes, I agree. I once was a sinner, but now I'm a Christian. I have a new heart. And so I don't have to struggle with wickedness anymore. Or My heart is no longer sick. It is healed and whole. I'm good. I don't struggle with wickedness like I used to. So because I'm a Christian, let's just pass on this Old Testament stuff and, and tell me some positive, encourage me, encouraging things. That's what I need. I'm a Christian. But let me suggest to you, it is a mark of spiritual pride to say you no longer struggle with wickedness in your own heart. And let me suggest that when Jesus looks into my heart and yours, he does not see a heart totally free from temptation and, we- and weakness and even some wickedness. And let me suggest that the more we grow as Christians, the more we come to know Jesus and his word, and the more familiar we do become with our own hearts, the more aware we are of how desperate we still are for his continual grace and mercy. 
Why else would we need new mercies every morning if we cease to struggle with sin? The moment we became a Christian, why would, why would we even read those verses? We intuitively know we need the mercy of God today. We intuitively know no matter how long I've walked with God, I still need him. I still don't know my heart as I should. I still struggle. And so we know this, when I come to Jesus, I am once and for all forgiven. The Bible calls it justified. I am accepted by God. But we also know if we keep reading that same Bible, we will continually be growing in holiness through the process of sanctification. And until we see Jesus face to face, we still have some heart sickness and we still need a heart doctor, a soul physician. We still need Jesus. And it's a very dangerous thing to believe that you are above sin and pride in your own heart. And yet that's just just the mark of superficial spirituality. I'm good. I got this. I've got it under control. It's a spirituality that has like a light and cavalier attitude towards one's own sin, towards one's own continual need for Jesus. I'm good. I got it. Listen, the more mature we grow in Christ, it's I need Jesus more than I've ever needed Jesus. I need Jesus for another day and another month and another year. Uh, a professor of revival, his name's Richard Lovelace. He was really influential um, in the thinking of Tim Keller. He was a professor at Gordon-Conwell. He, he wrote these words about a church. He says this, a church with a weak understanding of sin will thus inevitably be a church in which the flesh is alive and spiritual vitality is dampened. Listen, if we're not constantly thinking about, confessing our sin, if we're like, no, I got that, the flesh has a lot of room to grow. And if we're not constantly feeling our need for Jesus, then we will not have spiritual vitality. We will only get as far as our own strength. I got this. I'm good. I'm a Christian. I'm good. Do you know where spiritual vitality comes from when we say, God, I need you? That's the fuel for prayer. Why would we pray if we didn't need it? Prayer is when we know we need Jesus. We need Jesus just to keep loving Jesus. We need Jesus to long to love others more and the lost more. Jesus, help us in our weakness. If we are a church that is just proud of itself and proud of its spirituality and proud of its achievements, we will never truly pray. We will lose our spiritual vitality. But when we see our need for Jesus, listen, our prayer meetings will be full. Jesus, help us. We need you. We need you. Our city needs you. Help us, Jesus. If we are proud of ourselves, we will only carry ourselves. But when we humble ourselves, it says God gives grace to the humble. He pours out his spirit on the humble, on those who say, my heart, Jesus, needs you. I need more grace. I need more mercy. I need more love for you. And so our verse says, Jesus sees the heart. And he sees what's really going on in the desperately sick heart of humanity. But do you know this? That Jesus sees the depths of our sin, the worst of us. He sees it all. He actually sees it all in one moment. 
like the cumulative effect. And do you know what his attitude is towards desperately sick people? I love you and I'm coming for you and I will die on the cross for you. Listen, spiritually superficial people are like, I'm good. I don't need Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter five to the Pharisees. They were like, why is Jesus always hanging out with all these sick, sinful people? And look what Jesus says in Luke chapter five. We know these familiar words. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you have an aversion to calling yourself a sinner, listen, that's fine. You don't need Jesus. You're not a sinner. You don't need him. He didn't come for you. But if you're a sinner, you are exactly the kind of person Jesus loves and came for. If you still struggle, you still need a soul doctor. Listen, Jesus is exactly who you need. He sees us in our weakness and he loves us and he dies for us and he sustains us by his power and his spirit and he will carry us home even in our weakness. Now, uh, I wanna have a couple practical, uh, even personal things that we can take away. Um, I'm framing these personally for myself because these are what I need. Uh, you can do the same, or you could just write, Bo needs these things. Um, but here, here are a few. Number one is this. I can't trust my own heart. I need God's help every single day. I need his word and his judgments and his spirit. I need God. And you know what I also need? I need godly people. I need people who have permission to ask me the hard questions. I need people like my wife and my kids. I need friends. I need pastors. I need counselors. I need the people in this church. I need faithful and wise brothers and sisters who've gone before me in church history. I'd, I can't trust myself. I can't do this on my own. My heart's sick. My heart is still sick. It's, it's been healed, but there's some indwelling sin in there, and I still get confused, and I still get tempted. And so I need help. I can't trust my own heart. The second thing is this, I can't change myself. Any change I manage on my own strength is superficial. That's superficial spirituality. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I can't change myself, but Jesus can. He can change me. And so I need to pray, and I need to Ask God for his transforming power. God, would your word transform me? Would your spirit enable me and give me strength? I need to be sure I'm born again. Listen, there is nothing crueler than to try to obey God's commandments with a dead heart. That's just cruel. It's miserable. If that is your experience, maybe you need to pray, God, give me a new heart. I'm tired. This doesn't feel like life. I don't enjoy you. God, give me a new heart. I can't change myself. Even as we approach uh, the new year, these few days uh, between Christmas and the new year, are, they're, great, they're great days to reflect, but they're also great days to prepare, right? Because we have all these resolutions and whatnot. But as we, as we think about next year, uh, don't make a resolution you can do on your own. I mean, maybe, let me say it this way. Sure, make those. 
be healthy, do, you know, this and that. But make some resolutions that only God can give you strength to do. Make resolutions that you need God to accomplish so that every day you're like, God, help me do this. Help me be a better faithful spouse. Help me evangelize. Help me have your heart more for the lost. God, help me read through your whole word. Help me, listen to this one. Help me spend more time taking in your thoughts than I take in the world's thoughts. That's radical, right? That's insane. But, but think about what shapes us more. A few minutes or a few hours every single day. Think of the cumulative effect of how we are shaped. So make some resolutions that only God can help you to accomplish. We can't truly change ourselves. Number three, I'm not the best judge of other people's hearts. If I'm not a good judge of my own heart, I'm certainly not a good judge of others' hearts. Only Jesus knows what's in a man, what's in a woman, what's at the depth of their heart. And you know what? Only Jesus is worthy to be a judge of someone's heart. Who, who are we to be judging others' hearts when our own hearts are sick? I, I need to suspend my judgments of other people's hearts. And listen, even my own heart, And I need to look to what Jesus says about me and about others. And if I've received mercy from God, surely I can extend, I must extend mercy, that same mercy to others. Man, I can't judge and I don't know. And so God, give them mercy. Help them, Lord. Be merciful to them. Help me be merciful to them. And listen, on that final day when we're all standing before Jesus, I think we'll be surprised at the judgments Jesus makes. I think they'll likely seem harsher in some areas, and I think they'll also seem much more gracious than we'd ever imagine. And so let's trust the only one who's worthy and able to judge hearts. Let's trust Jesus with the judging of hearts, and let's, let's be most concerned with our own hearts. And then the fourth one is this. Gosh, this is good for me. I don't need to despise my own weakness. I don't need to despise my own weakness. Jesus sees me and he still loves me. He sees me at my worst and he still loves me. Superficial spirituality is concerned with outward appearances. How do I look? How am I appearing? I can't can't let myself seem needy. I can't let myself seem weak. But because of the grace found in Jesus, I'm free from that. I don't have to impress even God or others. I'm accepted by the blood of Jesus. And so it really doesn't matter what other people think about me. And it really doesn't matter what I even think about my own self and my own weakness. I can be honest with Jesus and with others about my insecurities and sin and pride and doubt. Uh, I I wanna close with this beautiful quote by this old Anglican pastor named J.C. Ryle. This is what he says. A real Christian may be weak, but he is true. One thing, at any rate, the servant of Christ can say when cast down by a sense of his own infirmity is, Lord, I am a poor sinner, but I am true. Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Thou knowest all hearts, and thou knowest that as weak as my heart is, it is a heart that cleaves to thee. 
The false Christian shrinks from the eye of an all-seeing Savior. The true Christian desires his Lord's eye to be on him morning, noon, and night. He has nothing to hide. You guys, Jesus is better than any sign or miracle, as good as they are. He's better than life itself. Fellowship with him is better than life itself. And Jesus provides the solution, the true solution to our true spiritual needs, our sick heart. And he's willing, he's willing to entrust himself to anyone who would humble themselves and come to him in true, genuine faith. And so have you done that? Have you, have you, have you, and will you? Jesus, we thank you for your love and your care for weak people like us, people who still struggle with sin and doubt and temptation. And Jesus, I thank you that you are not just some kind of self-help guru saying, here's the steps to make yourself better, get to work. But Jesus, you, you go below the surface. You go below superficial faith and you, you address us at our deepest needs and you meet us in our deepest needs. You are a true savior. And so Lord, I ask that we would be a church that deepens our faith. Maybe there are some here this morning who are currently just kind of admiring you, intellectually believing in you, maybe had some emotional experiences with you, but their faith is still superficial. It doesn't go down deep. Holy Spirit, would, would you soften and remove those rocks and would you let the, the seed of the word of God go deep into their hearts? Would it take root and go deep, Lord, so that whatever would come, we would still have you, intimacy with you and belief and trust in you. Lord, I thank you for how your word is a mirror and how it speaks honestly about us and our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would now apply your word to where we need it most. Uh, Even just a few words or phrases, Holy Spirit, just minister to us now. And above all, would you help us together to commune with Jesus, to have intimacy and fellowship with Jesus right now. Jesus, I thank you that you are not afraid of us or ashamed of us in our sin, but we are just the kind of people you came for, the sick, the sinner, those who need a doctor, and you love us and you care for us. And Lord, even as we kind of stumble along and as we are growing slowly, thank you that you don't despise our weakness. Thank you that you have compassion and mercy, and your mercies are new every morning. So Holy Spirit, do what only you can do now. Grow and deepen and nourish our faith. Would you save some and encourage others of us and allow us together to enjoy true intimacy with Jesus.